so many questions uh, still floating around about COVID-19. And um, sometimes you'd wish we had a crystal ball to know where we're going. We don't, but we can look back in history and compare it to another pandemic, the Spanish flu, which began in Boston in 1918. And by the time it burned itself out uh, nearly a year later, 750,000 Americans were dead. It affected 50 million people worldwide. And our guest of the show is Skip Desjardins, who is a historian, and he has written a book about the Spanish flu. Um, Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I guess one of the big questions is, what are the similarities between the Spanish flu and COVID-19? Well, there are a number of them. Some of them are comforting. Some of them are frightening. Um, And so the comforting part is that as Spanish flu spread across North America 100 years ago, uh, we learned how to deal with it. We learned how to mitigate it a little bit. We learned uh, lessons about isolating ourselves and keeping sick people away from other uninfected people. And it took some time in the early cities in Boston and Philadelphia, uh, particularly because those were the first places hit in North America, uh, the death toll was incredibly high. At at, at the peak, uh, one person was dying in Boston every nine minutes. Wow. Uh, they were totally unprepared and totally overwhelmed. Uh, but we have learned those lessons over time. Uh, the math is still scary. Because especially with COVID-19, you infect so many people, uh, and so many people being three, which doesn't seem like much. But uh, when you start to do the exponential math, when you've infected three and each of them have infected three, uh, it only takes sort of 10 turns of that to uh, a single person to be responsible for 50,000 people with the coronavirus. So that part of it is still frightening. Um, The science part of it uh, is interesting in that, you know, the the definition of a pandemic is a virus that has never been seen before, that humans have no uh, natural immunity to. to. Yeah. So um, we have made great strides in medicine since uh, Spanish flu of 100 years ago. That part is comforting. We're much better at uh, identifying which other kinds of drugs could be put to use. But at the end of the day, this is still about making sure that as few people as possible come into contact with the virus or somebody who carries the virus. I want to talk to you, but you sound like you're, we've reached you in the States. I don't know exactly where, but uh, where are you located? I'm in Connecticut, where we are okay. under total shutdown. Yeah. I mean, you're prime minister or president, rather. The way he's handling it is incredibly confusing for all of us up here in Canada, as I'm sure it is for Americans. His messaging is just unbelievable. Yesterday, he said he wants to have everything up and going in two weeks. But um, one of the things that I understand that are similar here that could be happening right now is leaders were too focused on the political. You're in the middle of an election campaign. They were focused on the political and economic concerns back in 1918. And so they were forced to make people go to work instead of implementing a shutdown. Are you at all concerned that we might be repeating history here, especially with regards to your president who is saying, oh, yeah, a couple of weeks and then we'll be up and running? Yeah, I'm hugely concerned about that. You know, the the political factor that drove 
so many of those bad decisions 100 years ago was World War I uh, and the United States needing to be on a hyper-war footage uh, footing to turn out the materials that troops in Europe needed. Guns, boots, ships, blankets. Uh, and so the government was very concerned that people would not go to the factory. Every male in the United States in September of 1918 had to have a job that was related to the war effort. They couldn't hold jobs that weren't. So our entire economy revolved around gearing up for the war. And if people were sick and didn't go to the factory and production lagged, the troops on the front lines wouldn't have the materials that they needed. And so that was the political consideration. Also, you had politicians making not very helpful uh, pronouncements. The Surgeon General of the United States in September of 1918 advised people that if they didn't want to catch Spanish flu, they should avoid tight shoes. Unbelievable. So, what was what was the rationale be- behind that? Did you ever find out? No one, no one really knows what the rationale was, except just grasping at straws. Uh, and so we see a repeat here in the United States where the president has sort of wavered between just delivering good news uh, in any possible stretch of the imagination or downplaying the severity of what what is taking place or uh, prioritizing economics and politics over public health. Let's talk about something else that was interesting with the Spanish flu. Um, I know you've done um, a whack of research on this and just before the Spanish flu, it was predated by an earlier flu that was a little bit sim- uh, similar to the Spanish flu, about a decade or so before. And so uh, because of that, they figured it wasn't affecting older people um, as uh, intensely as it was the younger people who were more susceptible to dying during the Spanish flu. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, that's the nature of the flu virus. We all get flu shots every year, and we cross our fingers and hope that this year's shot is going to be effective against this year's particular strain of flu because flu tends to mutate all the time. And so not only had had there been a round of flu in the years prior to 1918, but the Spanish flu that swept through Europe and it was called Spanish flu because Spain was neutral in World War I and didn't censor the press. So everyone knew there was flu in Spain. There was just right. as much in England and France and Germany. Um, but that particular strain of virus mutated on its way back to America. And so the version we had in North America was far more dangerous than the one that had struck Europe. And still, by the time it had gone around the world, more than 50 million people were dead. We're speaking with Skip Desjardins, who is a historian and author of September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. How does the World Series come into play here? I know that we, uh, you know, all of our major sports franchises decided right away early on in this pandemic uh, to shutter down, especially after that uh, one NBA player tested positive for COVID-19. Did the World Series go in 1918? The World Series was played in 1918, but it was played in September instead of October, which is what initially got me curious about this topic and led me to write the book. I wondered why a World Series would be played in September instead of October and why in the world anybody would go out to Fenway Park in Boston and sit in a crowd at a baseball game at exactly the point in time when doing that could kill you. And what I learned was that it was played in September because of the war, not because of Spanish flu. 
And the reason people went to the ballpark is because in the two-week period that the World Series was played in Chicago and in Boston, even though the epidemic had begun to circulate in the city of Boston, people were not yet showing symptoms. And so the public was not aware that everyone sitting around them at that ballpark could have been infected. And that's what, in many ways, led to the giant spike in cases in the city over the course of that month. So we've learned some lessons on hygiene from uh, the Spanish flu. We've learned some uh, lessons that we may not be following as far as uh, political and economic uh, shutdowns are concerned and, you know, um, protocols concerned. Um, I think we've the message is loud and clear with regard to the World Series because now the Olympics, they have uh, announced today that they will not be happening until summer 2021. But I want to ask you, Skip, what lessons in human nature uh can we learn from when it comes to the Spanish flu? Well, that it's difficult uh, to trust uh, people as a whole. You know, uh, I once heard someone say that a person can be a great person, but people in general tend to have tendencies that aren't beneficial to all of us. Um, In the Spanish flu epidemic, there were many of the same sort of pushbacks that we're seeing here in the States over the steps that needed to be taken. There was a city in Massachusetts whose health commission sort of shut down businesses, put them in a quarantine, and the the store owners in that city petitioned the federal government to take over running the town and reopen all the stores. Uh, One of the health considerations that was put into effect was that restaurants and bars were told that they had to start washing the glasses that they used in between customers. Because up until then, when somebody finished a beer, they refilled it and just handed it to the next person. Uh, And some bars and restaurants closed rather than do that because they didn't want the expense of hiring dishwashers. Hmm. So in that respect, I think human nature hasn't changed all that much. Uh, We don't like to be inconvenienced, even sometimes when doing so has gigantic societal implications. Well, Skip, what what have you learned yourself from being a historian and studying the Spanish flu? And how does it uh, how does it pertain to your life now in the time of COVID-19? Well, knowing what uh, how the math works itself out in scary ways, uh, we I began working from home uh, about two weeks before uh, everybody else uh, around me sort of took that step. I was lucky that I was able to do that. Uh, and we sort of socially isolated as a family much earlier than we were required to do so. Before here in Connecticut, all the malls are closed. All the stores are closed. Restaurants are open only for takeout. Uh, grocery stores are on limited hours. Uh, so having seen how this can spread and how quickly it can take place and what the downside consequences are, we as a family acted fairly early, and we're crossing our fingers that everybody else is on board and, and that together we can't stop this virus, but we can oddly prolong it so that we have just a shortage of toilet paper and not a shortage of ICU units. Okay, let me ask you this in 30 seconds or less, because we are up against a news break. Uh, Skip, as far as the Spanish flu is concerned, give us the numbers before it burnt itself out. Because if we don't get a vaccine, we have to wait for it to burn itself out. What were the de- what was the death toll like? 
Well, I'll give you the Canadian death toll. It was 55,000 people over the course of the Spanish flu year-long epidemic. Uh, that compared to 60,000 people who died in World War I, uh, 60,000 Canadians. Keep in mind, though, that we have you have four times as many people living in Canada today as in 1918. So on a scale, there are about 22 dozen people who have died so far in Canada. Uh, if you have the same death toll that Spanish flu was per capita, you'd have 220,000 deaths in Canada. Takeaway is to self-isolate and take this thing very seriously. Very, very seriously. Skip, thank you so much for your generous time today. Stay stay safe. I know you are. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Thanks for having me.